0: Today we are continuing our Lenten teaching series in which we're trying to just walk with Jesus day by day through the last week of his life, all the way to the cross, and then on finally to Easter, to his resurrection. And and it's a week that really, regardless of what you think of Jesus, it transformed history. And again, we can at times be so familiar with kind of the broad events of that week that we can kind of miss some of the profound wonder of what actually took place during those days. And last weekend, if you were with us, we looked at the events of Palm Sunday. If you weren't here, you can watch or listen to that on our website if you'd like. But today, we're going to come to what Jesus walked through on the Monday through Wednesday of that Holy Week. And it's going to eventually lead us to looking at what I think is a familiar story for most of us, but it's a story I think we often misunderstand. And so I just want to remind us again that when we come to the Gospels, the Gospel writers, they have this overarching theme as they lay out the details of Jesus' life. And they want to make certain we understand his clear identity is not just Savior, as wonderful as that is, but they want to make certain we understand Jesus is the King. He is a long-awaited Messianic King he is one whom the writer of Revelation calls the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. So when we look at Jesus, we realize, as we noted last weekend, he wasn't the kind of king that people were expecting. And, and that's why they will reject him, they will crucify him. So that's why we're asking in the series so what kind of king is Jesus? What kind of kingdom is he ushering in? And really, what does he expect of his subjects? For those of us who are seeking to follow him, how do we live under his kingship, express his kingdom in this world today, day by day? Now, as we look at what happened on Monday through Wednesday of Holy Week, we we find that Luke tells us that virtually the same thing happened each day, but with different interactions, different teachings from Jesus day by day. So listen to what Luke writes. We're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, if you want to turn there with me, and I encourage you to bring your Bible, or if you can't, at least bring a Bible out. That's secondary. Bring a Bible is a good thing. So we can read this together. Look at this, Luke 21. And again, as we hear this, friends, remember, this is the word of God. And Luke writes this in verse 37. And every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, But at night, he went out, he lodged on the mount called Olivet. That's the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So the final week of Jesus' life, every day was filled with time he spent at the temple, teaching about his kingdom. Okay, so with that being the case, I just kind of want to refresh our understanding, our picture of the temple All right, let's take a few minutes to do that. So let's do a bit of history, and let's go way back, all the way back to the book of Genesis, second chapter of Genesis, to the creation of humanity, of Adam. And this is what we read. This is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. It says this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay, now I don't want to take a lot of time with this very rich passage, apart from wanting you to see how this unfolds, all right? I want you to notice the order of this. That first, according to Genesis 2, it says God formed the man, formed Adam. Then second, after that, God planted a garden of Eden. And then after that, he put the man whom he'd formed in Eden. Right? That's the order there. Got it? Okay. Okay. Now, what's interesting is, because of that order, there's this strong tradition in Jewish teaching that Adam wasn't created in the Garden of Eden, but he was created elsewhere. And then, like verse 8 says here, then God planted him in Eden, which God then created. See how they get that from that passage? Kind of interesting this. And a strong Jewish tradition suggests that the place of Adam's creation was a place called Mount Moriah. Now, I wanna be clear on this. Genesis 2 doesn't say that specifically anywhere, but that's a Jewish tradition. And really understand this, that's likely what the Jews of Jesus' day, day believed about Adam's creation. So we ask the question, well, where's Mount Moriah? Well, it's actually not a mountain, it's, it's a kind of a hill in present-day Israel in Jerusalem. This is actually an artist's depiction of what Mount Moriah might've looked like in ancient times, just this barren hillside, next, right there. There's that hillside. Okay, so you have that. Okay, now add to that the Jewish tradition that the additional teaching in Genesis was at the place where Abraham traveled to offer his son Isaac. Look at this, Genesis 22, verse two. The Lord's God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So we ask the question, where was the place Abraham went to offer Isaac? Mount Moriah, right, okay. And roughly this would have been somewhere around 2000 BC, somewhere around there. And there on Mount Moriah then, as the story unfolds in Genesis 22, as he was about to offer Isaac, God said to Abraham, do not sacrifice your son, and God provided a ram nearby to be sacrificed instead, then Abraham, Abraham said this, Genesis 22:14. 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, meaning he called Mount Moriah, what? The Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now understand that phrase, the Lord will provide, That is one of the great names of God from Scripture. In the original Hebrew, it is Yahweh Jireh. That's the Hebrew expression. Now, we've anglicized that often to express it as Jehovah Jireh. Now, that was the name, understand, given to God by Abraham, where? On Mount Moriah, our God is the God who provides, okay? Now, let's fast forward from there, about 1,000 years. Let's move up to about 1,000 B.C. This is the time of reign of King David. Now, in 2 Samuel, we're told that God appeared to King David and told him to buy the threshing floor of a man named Ornan the Jebusite. And, and God told David, I want you to make an altar there to me. Now, a threshing floor was just a place where a farmer would bring all their grain from the harvest, put it down, and they would then kind of sift out the wheat, the good stuff, from the chaff, from the weeds. That was a threshing floor. And we read this, 2 Samuel 24 24. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Okay. Now, we learn in 2 Chronicles that the threshing floor was kind of, open, kind of an open land area, an open flat field on top of Mount Moriah. Now, okay, then we advance to the reign of David's son, Solomon. This is in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, meaning Solomon began to build the temple in Jerusalem, On Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place where David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So I want us to get this. So so Mount Moriah was also a place where the temple to God was built by Solomon. And again, the, the Jewish people understood that that temple was God's earthly palace. They viewed the temple as really God's home on earth that God's glory was there in a very particular, in a unique way. They understood that that temple was really the meeting place of heaven and earth. It was a mysterious, sacred, holy place. It really, they understood, it was like any other place on this planet. Okay, now, now about 400 years later, let's go to around five eighty-seven, 586 BC. That date ring a bell to anyone? Okay, that temple, Solomon's temple, right around then, was destroyed by the Babylonians during the time of the prophecies of Jeremiah. We just looked at that several weeks ago, if you recall that. So the people then, the temple was destroyed. The people were taken in captivity to Babylon. When they finally returned from that captivity, they rebuilt the temple. And that newly rebuilt temple was called the second temple. But interestingly, Ezra 3 tells us that it was such a, small, inadequate version of Solomon's just magnificent temple that many of the priests, when they saw this new temple, they just wept. It felt so small in comparison, okay? Now 500 years after that, now around 19 BC, then came the reign of King Herod, and Herod decided, I'm going to rebuild Solomon's temple on Mount Moriah. I'm going to have that temple regain the beauty, grandeur of what Solomon's temple was like. Now here's an artist's depiction of Herod's kind of rebuilt temple on Mount Moriah. That's kind of a scaled down version of what it would have looked like. This is what I want us to get. So that temple, that was a temple mount. That w- that's Mount Moriah where Jesus spent Monday through Wednesday every day of Holy Week. Okay, now here's a picture of Mount Moriah today. This is what it looks like today. This is standing from the Mount of Olives looking on. Now what remains, even of the temple from Jesus' day, is just those outer walls there. Now if you see the dome of the rock, the golden dome there, on the other side of that is the western wall. Now that's significant because let's actually spin around that. Let's come and look at it from the other side there. This is what the Western Wall looks like from the other side. You can see the throngs of Jewish people gathered there. On Shabbat, that's where the Jewish people have a synagogue, essentially, a time of worship together. Because they believe that Western Wall was a wall that Jesus saw, that Jesus walked around. And they understand that Western Wall would have been the nearest point that still remains to the temple, to the Holy of Holies. So they believe that the glory of God is still remnant there in some ways. Now, off in the distance, that's the Mount of Olives. That's where Jesus would go in the evening. But to this western wall, the Jewish people still come. In fact, anyone can now come. And you take prayers, written prayers, and just stick it in the stones, the large massive stones there of that wall, believing God's glory is still there in some way. Okay? Got all that? All right. Here's the thing. So Jesus spent every day before going to the cross at that temple. Jesus spent every day at the exact place where God, 2,000 years earlier, was identified by Abraham as Yahweh Yireh, Jehovah Jireh, God our provider think it was a coincidence that's where Jesus spent his time? Okay, so understand this. The history, the meaning, the connection of Mount Moriah, it just can't be overstated for the Jewish people of Jesus' day. Okay, so so that's some background. Now let's come back to the Gospel. Let's come back to Luke now. And and we ask the question, so what did Jesus' days look like at the temple? What was going on day by day in this? Well, earlier in Luke, again, we look at the end of chapter 19, Luke describes what happened on one of those days. This is on Monday, which again, this is a Monday immediately after Palm Sunday. And as we noted last weekend, Jesus concluded Palm Sunday after this triumphal entry into the city. He went right up to the temple and he cleared the temple of these kind of wicked money launderers that were Jewish. And then he rebuked the Jewish priests. Didn't give him a lot of favor of the leaders around that time. So that was Palm Sunday. And then on Monday through Wednesday, Jesus did this. We're in chapter 19 of Luke, verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Chief priests, scribes, principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. Can you imagine that sitting under the teaching of Jesus? And one day, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that's given you this authority? Okay, and then Luke 20 tells us that Jesus then had these daily confrontations with these religious cultural leaders. The scribes, it was the chief priests, elders, Pharisees, Sadducees, they kept challenging his authority, just trying to trip Jesus up in a way, because already by that time, we know they wanted to kill him. But first they needed to try to get the crowds to despise Jesus as well. So all week long, they were asking Jesus questions, just trying to trick him, trying to get him in trouble by what he said in one way or another. And Jesus kept responding to them with just these brilliant parables, these stories, that caused the crowds to just be even more amazed at Jesus' teaching. In fact, look at this in verse 19. It says, the scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived he had told this parable against them. Can you picture the scene? They're there, they are, Jesus telling the parable, and they go, I think he just slammed, did he not just slam us? I'm pretty sure he did. But they feared the people, so they watched him and they sent spies, listen, who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor so each day monday to wednesday jesus is at the temple surrounded by this literally deadly skepticism and spiritual hypocrisy and regardless of the questions they put to him they just couldn't trip him up in fact i love what verse 26 says it says and they were not able in the presence of people to catch jesus in what he said But marveling at his answers, even they became silent. (laughs) They give it like, this guy's too brilliant. We can't do anything against us. And then this, look at verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus wasn't trying to be subtle here. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. They like to walk along in their long robes. They love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogue, the places of honored feasts. And they devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, they make these long prayers. They'll receive the greater condemnation. So understand this. What Jesus was saying to his disciples then, and what he's saying to you and me today, and again, I'm I'm talking even to those of you here who might be the most active Christians around. What Jesus is saying is, is your life like this temple? unbelievably full of religious busyness but actually it's all really pretense there's just actually no authentic connection with god there might be a boy there's an awful lot of noise awful lot of clamor a lot of activity going on but it's just emptiness i mean jesus christ shows up at the temple because he says understand this temple it's about spiritual reality This temple is not just about kind of intellectually believing the right things or doing the right thing or being a nice person. This temple was built so you could know the living God, so you could encounter God like Abraham, like David, like Solomon did, right on this place, right on this mount. So Jesus is saying, just stop looking, being consumed by the externals. Jesus says, I hate a religion of externals. Don't look and see how moral you seem to be on the outside, how busy, how active you seem to be in all kinds of religious activities, all of that. Look beneath that, would you? Would you do an honest assessment? Honestly, is there a real encounter you've experienced or are experiencing with God? Do you know him personally? That's what he's talking about. So Jesus is talking about this scene of spiritual hypocrisy, skepticism. And then he turned and looks, and he sees a widow come into the temple courts. The very kind of person about whom he just said, these scribes devour widows. And so the people are they're coming into the temple, they're giving their offering, Jesus is watching. The rich come in, they put their money in the offering box. And they were kind of extravagant offering boxes, they were kind of trumpet-shaped baskets they would put their offering in. And then finally the widow comes in and it says, In what I know is a very familiar story for many of us. Luke 21:1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contrib- contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. She put in two small copper coins. So th- those coins were called lepta, actually. She just put in two lepton, and these actually, literally, were physically the smallest coins being produced at that time and and their worth, a lepta was worth one one one-hundredth of a denarius. So each lepta was about five minutes of labor at minimum wage. And that's all she had. And when Jesus sees her do that, he turns and he says, though the amount of her gift was the smallest, her sacrifice was the greatest. In fact, he goes so far. Notice what he says here. He says, she gave out of her poverty. She put in everything. She put in all she had to live on. Okay, now notice it. Unfortunately, there's not a single English translation I could find that's willing to be as radical as Jesus' actual words here. Because understand this, literally in the original Greek text of Luke, what Jesus actually says is she gives out of her poverty, she gives everything, She even her whole life she puts in. Because understand this, what Jesus literally says here in the Greek is, she put even her bios. Wanna guess what that means? It is your physical life. Jesus says she gave her life away in this gift. So what's Jesus saying? I think we kinda get it. I think when the rich give, in fact, let's be honest, I, I think when we give, almost all of us, almost all of us give out of our margin really. In other words, we only give some money because our gift has been given, and then are we eating less because of the gift? Oh, no, we don't give that much. <laughs> are we dressing any worse after we've given our financial gift? Well, not exactly, not that much, because we give out of our margin. Are we traveling any less because of what we're giving? Oh, no, we don't give that much. I mean, act- actually, it doesn't cut into our lives at all. For most of us, really, honestly, we just give some money. She did not. Jesus said when this woman put in her last discretionary cash what she was doing, she was taking food out of her own mouth, literally. And actually, more than that, she was giving up what little control she had of her life. I mean, because when most of the rest of us give, we only give what we can afford to give without losing any control over anything. I mean, we still do anything we want, really, after giving as before. But when she gave, She didn't just give her money because she gave up control. And then I think we need to ask an important question. So why is Jesus telling us this here? Why is Jesus bringing this up here in his final week of life? Don't you wonder that a bit as you look at this? Is Jesus' main point here really? Right before he goes to the cross, Make certain you give financially until it hurts. Is that really what this story is about? Jesus' point before going to the cross. And I don't think so. In fact, I think Jesus' point in talking about the widow, it's not so much to hold her up as a model for financial giving. I think he's holding her up as an example of how the scribes are devouring widows, what he just mentioned right before this that this widow was so fearful, so under the weight of the law, she didn't even think she could hold on to her last lepta. And, and we should notice this. We should make a point of seeing that Jesus never says there, therefore give financially like this woman gave. And I think the reason for that is because the story of the widow, friends, it isn't primarily about financial stewardship, which we most often hear it expressed as. At first glance, the story of the widow seems and again, it's often treated like a nice story about generosity and giving. But then when you take that story and you put it in its context, we need to ask, so why it's here in Luke's gospel? Why would it be here right after all this talk in the temple about spiritual hypocrisy and skepticism? You know, as Tim Kempton explains, I'd suggest this is a reason why. And I need to just unpack this a bit. I think we know this. I think mostly we are pretty well-educated 21st century Calgarians. And therefore, I think we, we have a tendency to say, well, I have trouble fully believing and trusting Christ in certain areas of my life because of some intellectual doubts that I have. And we know intellectual doubts can be significant. They can be. But I think if we're honest, a significant part of the reason we don't believe is not because we don't believe intellectually. It's that we don't wanna trust. I mean, we're afraid. Our, Our problem is not so much disbelief of the mind. I think more commonly, really, it's fear of the heart. Because even as followers of Jesus, we're scared of losing control of our lives. And I speak of this from personal experience. And and understand this, this is how a purely secular person and an outwardly religious person are, in the end, the same. And you say, what? They they look so different. I mean, as secular people and religious people, I mean, our culture's filled with them battling one another, right? I mean, how could they be the same? I mean, even the secular person says, I'll decide what's right and wrong for me. Nobody's going to tell me what the truth is. I determine my own truth. But then the religious person says, I'm going to follow God's rules so that He'll take me to heaven and bless me. And that's totally different from this godless secular person. And actually, it's not. Because at the root of it, neither of them is trusting, neither of them is really willing to give up any control at all. Because the religious person is trying to control God through their morality. Essentially, they're saying or thinking or believing. Okay, now, God, I'm, I'm trusting you, so you can't let anything bad happen to me, God. I'm a good person now. And then the secular person is trying to control his or her life by saying, okay, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you, so don't get involved in my life. And really, in both cases, basically, they're scared. I mean, they're fearful. I mean, I think it's fair to say they're spiritually afraid. Their driving, operating force is fear. Because... They don't have what this widow had, which was spiritual courage to trust. So don't limit her story to financial giving. This is a story about wildly trusting God. I mean, she was giving so much that her only option was trusting God. Ever been at that point where like, I have no other options, I have to trust you God. That's where she was living. I mean, and typically, the reason we don't believe as we should, the reason we don't connect with God like we want to or as we should is because often we're scared, we're afraid of losing control. So we ask, so if that's the case, if that's really our core issue, what are we going to do? I mean, what's the solution? How are we going to overcome that? And I think we overcome it here. Because only this Christian faith, think of this, of all the religions on the face of the earth, only the Christian faith dares to say that God actually became poor. He became exploited. That Jesus, God on the cross, was devoured. He became weak, he gave up control for us. And that's why we can begin to understand that this devoured widow at the temple She's not a model of generous giving, primarily, though she certainly is that. But rather, she's a foreshadowing of Jesus. She looks like what Jesus looks like and what he gave up. And, and therefore, God now says to you, I'll give everything I have if you give me everything you have. I will let heaven break out in your life as long as you let me be your king. And you know what? (laughs) A lot of us are afraid of that. I realize that. I would imagine for some of us right now as I'm talking about that, you are so aware of an area in your life where you know you are not trusting God. And really, you're afraid to trust him in it. I mean, I've had many people say to me in one way or another, I mean, I'd love to trust Jesus, but I don't wanna give up control of my life. I don't want somebody coming in and kind of rearranging the furniture of my life. I mean, a lot of people would say, I'd be happy to follow Jesus as long as I can hold on to this or this or be in control of this area of my life. And what that is, actually, it's bargaining with God. And Jesus says, okay, here it is. I'll give you everything if you give me everything. That's the offer. I don't know if you know the name of Charles Blondin old story. He was a famous French tightrope walker. And actually in June 30th, 1859, he stretched a tightrope across Niagara Falls, walked across it. First person to ever do it. There was a big crowd, like 10,000 people were there to watch him do this. And, and people, you gotta understand, were very excited. So he with his manager, Harry Callcard, said, come back next week, you'll see even better stunts. So the next week, The crowd was bigger. It was something like 25,000 people showed up. And Blondin went across the rope, and he did a stunt every time. Every time he crossed. And it got bigger and bigger, the stunts. You know what his stunts were? I mean, how did he do this kind of thing? He went across with a sack on his head for once. Then he bicycled across. Then he went across and stood on his head. I mean, people loved it. So he said, come back next summer, in August. I'm going to do even bigger stunts. And the people came in August of 1860. News reports said there were 100,000 people there. And, okay, what else is he going to do? Couldn't wait to see. So he went out. He somersaulted on the tightrope and one. He went across. How do you do this? He went across on stilts. My favorite one, he walked backwards from the American side to the Canadian side and then came back pushing a wheelbarrow. barrel. And, and he had a stove with a fire in that wheelbarrow. barrel. This is a true story. Halfway across, he made himself an omelet, ate it, and then finished the walk. But after all these crossings, he was kind of running out of stunts. So he said, okay, this is what I'm gonna do next. I'm gonna carry a man across on my back because then two lives will be at stake and the people went wild, cheering, oh, fantastic. Do you think I could do it? He said, absolutely, we've seen what you can do. Who will get on my back? (laughs) No one volunteered. Not in your life will I do that. Really our problem? It's like that. Because really, if we're honest, our our problem is not just the intellectual, is it? Our problem is, am I willing to entrust my life? Am I willing to give up control? You know, what happened with Blondin, by the way, is that Blondin then turned to his manager, Harry, and said, Harry, it's you. (laughs) Now, is terrified, but he got on his back. They they were halfway across. It was a very windy day, apparently, and Harry tried to start to lean against the wind. Blondin yelled to him, Harry, do not lean. If you try to save yourself, we will fall. Trust me, you have to lean into me. And really, Jesus says the very same thing to you because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's to say, Father, I I know what Jesus has done for me on the cross. I therefore will lean into him. I will rest in him. That's what it means to trust in Jesus. And and we know that's not just a one-time decision. That's a choice we need to make regularly, daily. Will I trust in him? And know this. Jesus doesn't promise promise it's not going to be difficult. He doesn't promise all you will experience is success and victories. In fact, you know what Jesus does promise? He promises this. He says, while you go through this life, waiting for the life to come, you will have troubles. You will have persecution. You will have opposition. But what Jesus does promise is that even though you walk through what feels like the valley of the shadow of death, I'll be with you. I will comfort you, strengthen you, and guide you. Because understand this, Jesus says, I am Yahweh Yireh, I am Jehovah Jireh, I am the one who Abraham couldn't even begin to understand how God would provide, that's me. I am your provider, will you let me carry you? So perhaps, as a way of physically saying yes to that invitation, we can come now to this table And again, we can come and perhaps for you, there's an area you know God is calling you to trust him in. And as we pass the bread, perhaps you'll come and be reminded and say, okay, I trust in you because the body of Jesus was broken for me. And then likewise with the cup, let the cup be a reminder for you in this and a ministry from God to you in this because the blood of Jesus was poured out for you. And Father, we would ask, would you nourish us with these elements? And so I invite you to come. We'll pass the bread and likewise with the cup and receive together from him. And before we do that, though, can we pray? Will you pray with me? So Father, you know the condition of every one of our hearts. You know exactly the areas in our lives where we're trusting you, the areas where we put up walls, So I pray by your grace, even as we receive this meal, would you by your grace, Father, nourish us with it, strengthen us with it. Give us a boldness by your Holy Spirit to to rest in you, to lean into you. For you are indeed our provider. And all God's people say, amen. Let's come to the table.